so excited today that we have our old friend, Joseph Coderill, here to talk to us. We know Joseph from his years at FD Alphaville, years when he really made the world of sovereign debt come to life in a way in which I don't think any other financial journalist ever has. And his articles on the Paripasu saga, almost a hundred FT Alphaville pieces are now legendary. I, I wish he would convert them into a book. An English academic actually converted them into a play that I remember seeing at a conference in Glasgow. But Joseph is a legend, uh, unfortunately for us, has moved a little bit away from sovereign debt matters relating to the whole globe, uh, but he has remained interested, I think, uh, in terms of matters relating to the African continent. So we're going to ask him today in the first half about the extraordinary story of Mozambique's tuna bonds, and then in the second half about what I think is a very scary prospect, which is that of South Africa and its state-owned company, ESCOM, plunging into default in the near future. So let's start with the tuna bond saga in Mozambique, and Joseph, I have a lot of questions about this, but could you set the stage for us a little bit by telling us what the tuna bond saga was? Uh, thank you for the introduction, Mito. Uh, I, can't, I can't believe it was 100 uh, or nearly 100 posts in the Parapusu saga. That takes me back. But uh, since I became Southern Africa correspondent of the FT in 2016, uh, the, the, the Mozambique tuna bond saga, while well, it's predated my time uh, here in the region, uh, but it's gone on ever since um, through, through multiple rounds of litigation, civil and criminal. Where is best to begin uh, in terms of understanding why Mozambique was issuing bonds in the first place? Because this was a sovereign that had not issued international debt before it issued this famous tuna bond. Uh, and I suppose the, the million dollar question is, why is it a tuna bond specifically? First, I have to talk about natural gas because uh, the context here is that Mozambique, before it issued the tuna bond, was seen as one of the, the poorest and most unstable uh, countries in the Southern African region. Um, it had achieved independence uh, from the Portuguese uh, after a long, long civil war, uh, then fought another civil war after independence um, into the 1990s. Uh, this had caused you know, terrible destruction and poverty. And while Mozambique did have some have some natural resources, such as uh, coal uh, and other kind of minerals, um, it, it didn't seem to have very much going for it before the discovery of natural gas just over a decade ago. And that is where people begin to become interested in borrowing from Mozambique or convincing Mozambique to issue debt to help kind of finance the gas development and other other projects related to the gas. And that is where the tuna comes in. More context on, on, the, on the natural gas uh, developments around Mozambique. You know, this is all offshore, uh, so it's maritime. Just to give a sense of the scale of those projects, 
you know, for example, Total, the French energy major, uh, which is a major investor uh, in the projects today, you know, just recently this year, uh, it secured a $15 billion debt financing from various uh, lenders to, to, to develop just one part um, of this, this, this huge gas development. So this is a huge scale, uh, much bigger than Mozambique's economy is today. So that's a, just to give you a sense of how transformative this offshore gas was. Mozambique's ruling party, which is called Frelimo, back in the beginning of the 2010s, and you're thinking about, you know, we have this gas bounty on the way. You have probably two um, questions. One, how are we going to benefit from it as the ruling party? Uh, and two, how secure is this going to be? Uh, if there are multi-billion dollar uh, developments taking place off our shores, how do we ensure the maritime security of that? Which is all a long way of saying, when Mozambique in 2013 issued an $850 million bond to finance a quote-unquote state tuna fishery, there was more going on than simply its desire to get more tuna out of its uh, shoreline. Uh, there was more going on here and it involved security and it involved the natural gas bounty. And so one of the, the interesting things to me about this is that the way the loans were set up was really opaque and, and non-transparent. So co correct me if I'm sort of misremembering some of the details, but there's a series of three loans, all of which are you know, ostensibly to state-owned firms, but two of them are hidden, they're sort of off books somewhere, and all of them are guaranteed by the government. So I guess I have sort of two questions. One is just question about why, um, if we know, why the borrowing is set up in this really opaque, non-transparent way, when really it's, it's um, gonna hit the government's balance sheet as a practical matter. And then I guess the broader question is a, a market structure question. How much of this sort of hidden debt do we think is out? Okay, uh, the second question um, is easiest to answer uh, because when the, the debts were revealed in about 2016, the, the, the dollar amount was about $2 billion. So if you bear in mind the $850 million tuna bond itself, which was disclosed at the time when it was issued in 2013, although there are other questions about how transparent it was, so there's more than another billion dollars, uh, again, of hidden loans out there. Uh, and when we talk about hidden, we mean in particular hidden from the IMF. So the one organization which should really know what Mozambique's debt situation is, because Mozambique is one of those countries that you know, needs IMF loans from time to time, did not know the full extent of these debts when they were issued alongside the tuna bond in 2013. Now to your first question, why, why split it up three ways? Uh, as I said at the start, Mozambique, the government, had not issued an international bond before this point. So it's already unusual for it to issue uh, a government-guaranteed corporate bond, effectively. So you have to bear in mind the three companies are here. One is Amartum, the state tuna fishery, that, that issued the, the $850 million bond under guarantee. And then the two hidden companies for the purposes of, of the hidden loans, uh, ProIndicus and MAM, or MAM, we'll call them for the purposes of discussion. These are two companies involved in maritime security and surveillance. 
equipment. I'm generalizing quite a lot about what their real activities were, but let's just leave that at that for now. So free companies, they all receive kind of guarantees on their lend on their borrowing from international debt markets. Uh, the context here is that Mozambique does not have a great deal of experience of international borrowing. Why? Why do it this way? As I said, uh, this is really a story about security uh, and corruption uh, and not about tuna and to a huge extent, not really about the functioning of debt markets. It was about how debt is used as a, as a mechanism to enable corruption. Uh, and so that is why we have this strange freeway split and with two of those entities in particular, not a great deal of transparency at the official level of the IMF and also Mozambique's donors, which we can talk about. Joseph, I want to ask more specifically, and within the context of the corruption, about the conversion into a euro bond. So as I understand the story, there's initially these loans with state guarantees that are opaque. And then at some point after Mozambique is not able to pay either that or uh, news about the corruption starts leaking out and there emerges a risk that the state will have to renege because of the corruption under pressure from NGOs and civil society, I imagine. The government converts one of the loans into a eurobond. And from the perspective of the investors, this could be seen as something wonderful, a big, a giant Christmas present, because while a loan infected by corruption could be challenged in English courts quite easily, uh, in the English law is quite harsh on loans infected by corruption. It is much harder to challenge a bond with dispersed investors who could argue they have no idea about it. And Mozambique converts the loan into a bond seemingly for no benefit to the state. And so I watched this from the outside. I don't know what Mark's view on this is. And it looks even more corrupt. Uh, it's the like corruption adding to corruption. So, and, and you know, then there's an, another stage of this, but I'll ask you about that uh, next. But uh, this this seems to be the classic adding insult to injury. But you know the details, so I'm hoping you will tell us what really happened. Well, first of all, um, has as has become clear in recent years, it was not clear at the time. Uh, the granting of the guarantees for these loans in the first place was deemed by the Mozambique Constitutional Court to be illegal for, for, for various reasons and you know not going through the proper kind of procedures. So what we know now compared to what we knew um, at issuance in 2013 or the restructuring uh, or the revelation of hidden debts in, in 2016 is that actually, yes, at the time, you know, this was illegal. Um, that was not the story at the time. The story at the time was this, this tuna fishery has got into commercial trouble. It's not viable. Uh, the state can't fulfill its guarantee. There'll have to be a restructuring. Uh, the, the offer that was made was, you know, as you said, to turn this into a sovereign obligation. And it's a good question, as you point out, you know, is this effectively to, to launder the, the, the taint of corruption uh, away from Amartam at the time? Obviously, that clearly did not work because there were even more questions about corruption. But it's a very unusual procedure. The argument had been that, well, this will now 
Now, if the sovereign obligation, uh, the state would be more willing to, to repay this from, from the perspective of investors. And yet, in 2013, those same investors could have asked um, of the use of proceeds clause um, in, in the original Martin Bond, which was to say, you know, we want to set up a state tuna fishery to help Mozambique's economy develop while it's, uh, ex- you know, exploring and um, investing in this natural gas bounty. That was not true. Put the hidden debts to one side for a, for a moment. Uh, this tuna fishery was acquiring equipment, which was seen by activists at the time as effectively military in purpose. So you, you have to remember two, two key institutions here. One is Credit Suisse, the Swiss bank that arranged uh, these loans with uh, VTP, uh, the Russian bank involved at some point, but it was mostly Credit Suisse. Uh, and Primvest, which is an Abu Dhabi-based shipbuilder, which provided quite a lot of equipment for these loans. And now, as it's become clear in, in criminal litigation in the US in particular, the, the argument of prosecutors was that bankers at Credit Suisse who worked uh, on these loans were effectively designing them to siphon uh, money away for themselves and for others in this, in this alleged kind of scheme. And you know, likewise, Privinvest was effectively controlling how the loans were being borrowed and how money was being distributed once they had been issued on the markets. So there's this uh, kind of huge underground here of what is Credit Suisse up to, what is Primvest up to, and then what is the government up to, feeding into then this, this transformation later on of the Amartan bond into a government bond. And my recollection is that the sort of right in the middle of this process of converting the Amartan bond into a, a sovereign euro bond, that's when the the two hidden loans are disclosed and, and everything sort of blows up from there. Um, is, that, is that right? And maybe um, this will be a useful question to segue into our break and then our discussion of guarantees in the, the South African context. Uh, yes, effectively. So if, if Emartem had gone its merry way and never really had to be restructured, yeah, it's a good question when or if uh, the hidden loans would have been revealed. But... Like, you know, when this restructuring took place, that was the point in which the government effectively had to disclose to the IMF in particular and governments that donate aid to Mozambique that uh, actually this is the true picture of our debt situation. And as it became clear, those two companies I mentioned, Proindicus and MAM, uh, you know, providing maritime security, shipyards and so on, they were also commercially unviable and as would also soon become clear, they would have the taint of corruption uh, around them too. So, so this is the thing that always puzzled me. Um, I, I take your point about how the the sort of narrative at the time of uh, at the time of the loans, and maybe even a bit later towards the time of the conversion, was um, you know the Amatum loan had been disclosed from the beginning, and and maybe people weren't focusing on the legitimacy of the guarantee. But were any of these? Um, the entity borrowers, the state-owned firms, were they viable borrowers? I mean, my sense is that none of them had a history of generating revenues. None of them looked like the kind of entity one would trust to repay a very sizable loan out of sort of aspirational future re- future revenues. So the whole thing looks like a way of kind of obscuring uh, uh, both the loans. Um, so was that, that narrative about the Amatum loan 
false at the time? Should people have been aware that there were deep problems here to come back to Mitu's question and sort of to call into question the laundering of this loan? Um, I'll tell you a story of, this must be 2018 or, or perhaps earlier, 2017, when I, when I went on a reporting trip to Maputo, which is the capital of Mozambique, which is where uh, Emartem is based. And so as part of my reporting on the June of Bonds, I went to visit Emartem headquarters, expecting to find yeah, a relatively well-to-do corporate office, given how much Emartem had, had, had come to dominate the scandal. You know, surely it must be quite a business. Right. Uh, and actually it was, it was a relatively small house in a suburb of Maputo. And the only thing that really told you that this was a, a supposedly Mozambique's state tuna fishery was a recipe for tuna posted outside uh, the front door. And then you walked in and the offices were, were seemed to be abandoned. And it was all very strange, but not so strange because by that point it had already become apparent that all three of these companies, Martin, Proindicus and MAM, uh, were owned by or had links to Mozambique's intelligence service, which again, uh, disclosure of that was spotty, to say the least, uh, when these loans were issued. But given Mozambique's history, should investors have known? Uh, yes, uh, I spoke about Frelimo, the, the ruling party and, and the former liberation movement, which fought in the war uh, against the Portuguese, that Mozambique's post-independence history is about Frelimo, its size to the military, it's a very small world, there are lots of sort of dynasties and families who kind of share business interests uh, in Mozambique. Investors could have known about that at the time, even in 2013, uh, even if the true scale of, of the corruption hadn't become apparent. But 2013 was also a point in time in the international debt markets where QE was in full flow. There was a real mania for yield uh, in emerging market uh, debt investments in particular. Mozambique was a new borrower. It was exciting. This was an unusual structure, or this is how Credit Suisse sold it at the time. You know, this was a fantastic government guaranteed bond. How can you lose? So I think some of those factors may have. Uh, blinded investors to the reality of Mozambique as a, as a political system. Well, thanks, Joseph. This is probably a good time to take our break, but I think the, the title of this episode maybe should be the 850 million um, recipe, since that's what uh, the one tangible thing that we know we've gotten out of this. And we should post a picture of the recipe. <laughs> this is just, I mean, it's so astonishing. I'll look for it. I hopefully, I hope I've got it. Uh, somewhere. Uh, if not, I've got pictures of the boats uh, rusting in Maputo Harbour that were bought with the bonds and were never used. That's also a good illustration. All right. Well, this will transition us nicely to talking about South Africa because I want us to start by talking about the question of why the government is still paying the bonds uh, as best I understand. But let's take a break now. So I can't help but ask the $850 million question, which is why in the world, given all of this corruption, perhaps more than any place we have seen, 
the government of Mozambique is continuing to pay these bonds. And if I remember correctly, and Joseph, I do not blame you in any way for this, there have even been pieces in the FT saying that the government should pay these because it's good for the market or, you know, the contracts say they'll pay them back. These claims strike me as completely unsupported by evidence. And this this also transitions us nicely into talking about South Africa, because I continue to be puzzled as to why the South African people are saddled or were saddled with paying apartheid era debt. But the, the claim that is made by some, actually many, is that if you don't pay your debts, your borrowing costs will rise, and so you should pay them. And as a generic matter, that claim surely has to be right. But on the other hand, if I have debts that a previous government incurred corruptly, it is not at all clear to me that my borrowing costs would rise if I disavow the corruptly incurred debts, because I would think my new lenders would like some assurance that I will not pay debts that did not benefit my government. At the least, this should be a question worthy of empirical inquiry. But, but at bottom, I am I, just puzzled by why the people of Mozambique continue to be saddled with these debts. Has the government no shame? One, uh, one good point to mention here is that Mozambique completed a restructuring last year, I think, um, of what became the tuna bond. So they still had trouble paying it back. Uh, they, so they went to bondholders and said, look, can you restructure again? And the bondholders uh, agreed because the, 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 the dollar signs from the natural gas riches um, were in their eyes. You know, eventually at some point, Mozambique, they bet, will have the money to, to repay them. So it's interesting that they know that this is a, a constantly reoffending borrower, uh, and yet they continue to make restructuring agreements uh, with it. So, what if Mozambique had said uh, at some point in the last decade, "Well, we uh, we're going to uh, abandon these debts entirely and and start off on a clean slate"? But would the bondholders have come back and said, "Well"? We know you're going to be transformed uh, by this natural gas bounty down the road, so that won't affect your borrowing costs too much because we believe that you'll have the revenue. Uh, it's something of a counterfactual now, but uh, that's a question I would ask. And in particular, the kind of the intercreditor issue here, which is that the the Martin bondholders received the the sovereign transformation stuck through thick and thin, uh, more or less, with the government. Uh, beyond that. And then the holders of what were the hidden loans, so the Proindicus and MAM loans, these were not outright bonds in the way Amartam was. The ownership of those loans has always been a big question, who really owns them? Why did the government not at the very least say, well, we'll default on Proindicus and MAM? I mean, they did anyway, but why not repudiate them, say that these are particularly odious these are the ones that were hidden. That's why we won't pay them. Um, and we'll, we'll stick with a Martin. Um, even that kind of relatively minimal strategy wasn't really tried um, in the end. They, they've, they've more or less committed to, to keep paying. 
so this is probably a good transition point to talk about ESCOM and mm -hmm. South Africa. Um, moving away from sort of dodgy hidden loans and guarantees to uh, an explicit guarantee. And I guess, again, I have um, two questions if I can, if I can fit them both in. So the, the first is, um, you know, I see lots of press reports um, and reports for investors touting the guarantee as sort of ironclad. And I, I kind of want to dismiss those. My understanding is that most and probably all of the guaranteed debt is local law debt. And so, you know, the, the technicalities legally are probably less important. Um, are we right to assume that uh, SCOM is so important that the governments um, will bail it out, will um, ensure that its debts are repaid? I guess that, that's question one. Is it really so fundamental that we should be making that assumption? And the question two is, if that's the right assumption to make, this whole thing seems weird to me. Like ESCOM's borrowing costs are higher than the government's. So why not just have the government borrow the money and lend it to ESCOM? Why, why pay this mm. premium for borrowing directly? I, I, it just seems stupid to me. Okay, firstly, how fundamental is ESCOM to Africa's most industrial economy? Uh, short answer, very. Um, ESCOM is a century, nearly a century old uh, monopoly. It generates over about 90% of South Africa's electricity. Uh, it does so mostly through these huge coal-fired power plants that, that dominate the landscape um, in large parts of South Africa, and not just the economy. Uh, if you think of the, the coal mines, other, other, other supplies that depend on ESCOM itself, uh, as well as the economy depending on its power. So it's hugely important. The problem is that its debts are equally huge. Uh, they are coming up to 500 billion rand, so that's about $30 billion. The South African economy itself, its GDP post-pandemic um, is about 2.6 trillion rand. So ESCOM's debts as a, compared to GDP in South Africa are quite large. The uh, the African National Congress, the, the governing party of South Africa would argue, well, that's, uh, those debts reflect its importance to the economy. But to your second question, why not borrow directly? Um, why go through all this trouble? ESCOM is one of several state-owned enterprises in South Africa. These are, these are seen as the commanding heights of the economy. Uh, the, the ANC's position since it took power in 1994 is that SOEs such as ESCOM should be used to transform the economy um, and you know, change the, the post-apartheid ownership of the economy to place more into the hands of the black majority, essentially. So these have huge political importance. At the same time, the ANC since 1994, before the years of state capture, which we can talk about in a second, had a real commitment to fiscal prudence. And it wanted to argue that state debts to GDP were always going to stay low. It would retain investment grade ratings from the major agencies. And then ESCOM, which at the time was a relatively well-run utility, actually a world-class utility, was so well-managed that uh, it would be fine for it to borrow by itself on the markets. And that guarantee, which, you know, as you mentioned, uh, a lot of 
the government's and ESCOM's issuances, local law or local currency, uh, that would not really be a major issue. Like actually, ESCOM's quality of its business uh, and its importance to the economy would mean that this was a sure bet for investors. The state capture years uh, or the last decade of, of corruption and rising uh, decay in the South African state changed that equation. Joseph, was the fact that and I, I am not sure about this. I, I'm just uh, drawing from memories of Greece. Were ESCOM debts counted as part of the sovereign's debts? And I'm assuming not, since often countries use the guarantee structure, even when it's more expensive, sort of getting to Mark's question, because they can hide the debts from uh, viewers, at least as an accounting matter, it's just that, you know, uh, uh, the South African situation with these, with 30 billion of state-owned company debt, at least this particularly, particular state-owned company debt, seems to dwarf Greece or anything that we've seen ever before. Is, is that some of it or were they, were, were they counting ESCOM's debt as part of the state debt numbers? Until relatively recently, the, uh, the South African government presented these as contingent liabilities. And when I say until recently, I mean when ESCOM began to seriously run out of money because of his cash flow problems. Um, I'll, I'll talk about why ESCOM's in crisis uh, in a second. But basically, as it began to run out of money to pay its own debts, uh, increasingly, the state had to take over and provide bailouts in recent budgets to pay for that and so increasingly the the debts of the two have been equated because de facto that relationship has crossed that threshold where the state is paying for ESCOM's debts as they come due in the next few years in particular and likewise major ratings agencies which previously did uh, separate the two have begun to regard uh, ESCOM's debts as de facto state debts so Moody's, which was the last country, uh, last agency to have the country on uh, investment grade, began to do that before it uh, downgraded uh, South Africa to junk uh, status earlier this year. So for a time, there was this, I guess you could call it a polite fiction, that ESCON's debts would be treated separately uh, in the accounts to government debts, but de facto, that has begun to change. And so there's a wide awareness now that these are obligations of the state, even though investors still uh, treat them a bit differently. So is, you know, the, the, the nightmare of what happened in Greece is still fresh in my mind. And my, my memory is that it was the guaranteed debt that toppled the dominoes. They weren't counting it. And then all of a sudden it starts getting counted uh, because the European authorities realize that, you know, these guaranteed entities like the railroads, they, they're ne they never made any money. And all of their coupon payments were being paid by the state. And uh, so the, the decision was made uh, by Eurostat that they got to be counted in the debt stock and then debt stock balloons the whole thing crashes and we have years of uh, crisis. And are people in South Africa or in the markets talking about this? Because crucial questions that in a sense were never asked in Greece, I would think need to be asked. Like, 
what are uh, the restructuring provisions that ESCOM has in its uh, bonds? And uh, Mark and I were trying to look at them. First, it's really hard to figure out what those provisions are, what law governs, mm. what part of the document. Mm. But best I can tell, while the South African sovereign bonds have, you know, the fancy schmancy uh, uh, ICMA collective action clauses that, well, admittedly don't work as uh, well as uh, advertised, at least they have something. But I don't think that the ESCOM bonds have, at least with respect to the state guarantee, uh, any of the state-of-the-art restructuring provisions. And that means, or that could mean, that the government's going to be in deep doo-doo with respect to these. Is there a Concern about this, chat about this, especially given uh, the economic downturn caused by COVID, which surely is making things even worse. Well, at the level of uh, restructuring provisions uh, in bond contracts, that that discussion isn't being had in South Africa because uh, normal people, and we're not normal people, uh, tend not to talk about that. But the two things here, the ESCOM's internal crisis, uh, and the state capture years have made South Africans very aware of the issue of what are, are they on the hook for if, if ESCOM uh, does go under and, and what would be the obligations of the state to um, restructure that, that debt, um, even if the, you know, the legal details um, are, as you said, unclear or, or not widely discussed. So I have to talk about first the ESCOM's uh, generation crisis. Uh, you have to remember, uh, at the beginning of the decade, ESCOM was a well-run utility, or is regarded so uh, internationally. It was generating the power that the economy needed at the time. Uh, but as I said, this is dependent on coal power plants, which were getting old. And so as the 2000s rolled around, from 2007 onward in particular, what's known as load shedding in South Africa, but is effectively rolling power blackouts, um, began to take hold because ESCOM had failed to invest in new power plants and its, its existing fleet was getting old. So this is the beginning of the cash flow debt uh, crisis that we have today. South Africa tried to invest in new gigantic coal power plants in the 2010s, I can tell you now in 2020, these are still not finished and they're still not operating effectively. So that generation crisis continues, the blackouts continue. They're in fact more intense than ever. So that's the internal generation crisis, which has made people extremely aware that ESCOM is in a classic utility death spiral, uh, by which I mean that uh, the more unreliable it becomes at generating power, the more customers it loses, the less money it has the more unreliable it becomes and the cycle continues. So that is going on already. And then, as I mentioned, state capture in South Africa, which was this decade under uh, the former president, Jacob Zuma, of widespread rot and decay in state institutions, uh, including the state-owned enterprises, because of the mismanagement and graft uh, to simplify of those years. Again, ESCOM's debts balloon um, ESCOM is seen as a place to loot contracts, tenders, so on and so forth for the benefit of the ruling party and its cronies. And so that means today 
in South African politics, you will have people who say, well, that they're just not pay back the debt or that they just find a way to make ESCOM smaller, break it up, try and send the debt to various parts of the sovereign balance sheet to, to make this work. You know, ESCOM's own management has argued the state needs to take some of ESCOM's debt onto its balance sheet to enable ESCOM to borrow more cheaply again in the international markets. So these financial restructuring arguments come up all the time. There is no decision yet. This is a really, really big, complex problem, but that is the context. Well, we should let Joseph go, but maybe I can squeeze one more question in before we go, really just to follow up to, to Mitu's and to your answer. So the Greek situation is um, relevant too because the financial crisis became apparent long before the restructuring actually happened. And, and, and of course, from many people's perspective, it was um, too little, too late. So um, we have you on record, I assume, as acknowledging that the time is now from a, a good governance perspective. Am I, am I putting words in your mouth? It, it seems like there is no reasonable basis for thinking this is some liquidity crisis that will pass, but that the government is throwing good money after bad at the moment. Too strong or, or about right? No, no, no. If anything, you're understating this is a structural problem uh, because it's related effectively to South Africa's energy transition. If the coal power plants which dominate ESCOM's generation do not function properly, and if they don't have a future, ESCOM's future is in question. And so the cash flow it receives from sending power to the economy to, to support those debts, as I said, it's a death spiral. Uh, and this is why, you know, this year in particular, there have been so many debates and arguments in the ANC and outside about not just restructuring the debt of ESCOM, but restructuring ESCOM itself. And that's something investors have to keep an eye on um, because it will affect where their debt goes and who pays it back in the end. It may be that the magic solution is to acquire the, um, the $850 million tuna recipe and find a way to monetize that. Um, but, but failing that, that will be our, our follow-up podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for coming on today, uh, Joseph. It's been, it's been um, really, really great to have you. Yeah, thank you. This is just, I mean, the, we know so little and pay so little attention to African sovereign debt problems. And we know we should pay more attention because some of the problems there are bigger than any of the others. Uh, but I fear mm. that COVID has caused us to really stop paying attention to many of the em emerging markets and that's gonna come and bite us in the backside. But thank you, thank you so much for giving no us. No worries. I was, I was gonna say you should do Zambia uh, because it's a classic post-pandemic restructuring involving Chinese debts versus bondholders. So that's a good one to do if you want to do more African sovereign debt. Perfect. We will hold you to that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>